Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Network, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. This episode is one of a series of recordings of live classes that I've taught in the Numinous Network, uh, my online membership platform, and I'm publishing those classes here on the podcast so you can have a preview of how I teach ahead of Free Week, which is happening this year from September 17th to 23rd. So in 2017, I completed my certification to do somatic attachment therapy training, um, I did that with Diane Poole Heller. She's a well-known psychologist and author and somatic experiencing trainer. She's like one of Peter Levine's first uh, trainers over 20 years ago. And she developed a body of work that combines attachment and Peter Levine's somatic experiencing with P- Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory. In one of the earliest trainings with Diane, she used this term contact nutrition, just like one time, just like a simple throwaway line. And she's a really brilliant psychoeducator, just an excellent teacher. So she's got like a million very memorable teachings. But that one term jumped out at me at, at, as just, it just seemed like the heart of the work of attachment. Contact nutrition is a term that describes the building blocks of secure attachment. It's the how of secure attachment in a nutshell. Contact nutrition is to attachment what vitamins are to a healthy diet. Contact nutrition consists of kind eyes, vocal prosody, safe touch, shared rhythm, and ingestion behaviors, which just means eating and drinking. So I heard Diane describe attachment behaviors with this term, contact nutrition. And I guess I just like have one of those brains that can like turn over a phrase and like expand it for like a long time. And I just couldn't sort of let it go. And I guess I was just sort of like, okay, this is my personality now. (laughs) And so this really is Diane's work. And I weave in what I've learned from other teachers, both within and outside of somatics, um, especially drawing on black feminist socialism and the movement for disability justice to shape my style of somatic practice and of psychoeducation and teaching. Being the collapse aware person that I am, by April 2020, it was very clear to me that every person in the world was going to need trauma therapy like real quick, and they were going to need it in a very affordable and effective and pretty short online delivery system. So at that time, I offered what I then called co-healing pods. And these were groups of like six to 10 people meeting weekly for like six to 10 weeks. It kind of depended on the season. And the first third of the session was me giving a lecture on contact nutrition, like just homing in on one element of either kind eyes, vocal prosody, safe touch, shared rhythm, or ingestion behavior. It just seemed obvious to me that in the pandemic, which again, obvious to me, seemed like it was going to take several years, uh, people were going to need to learn how to co-regulate and how to live together and how to be humane um, under long-term stress. 
So the first third was psychoeducation. Then the middle of the pod, that, that hour and a half, was spent guiding everyone through somatic exercises to help illuminate and expand on the lecture in, in yeah, some experiential way. And then the last third of the session was spent in breakouts where people would offer sharing and the partner would have silent witnessing around whatever has come up for them around that session's topic. So in the first year of the pandemic, 2020, um, I led almost 300 people through my co-healing pod series. Many people took them again and again. And by April, 2021, it was time to evolve the pods so that all these people could keep practicing the exercises and continue developing their vagal tone and, and deepening their resilience, but like not having to sit through all the psychoeducation again. Though, again, many people took it again and again. Um, but really what I wanted was to kind of stop repeating the psychoeducation piece and make the psychoeducation like more open more available so I could teach more people at once and also have it on demand so people could go back over the material as they hit new milestones in their healing journey or as they shifted their attachment style to more secure functioning. You know, they'd, they'd complete some developmental task and then it would be good to go back and like listen to that material on demand for where they were at then. Also, there were things I like couldn't fit in to co-healing pods because like 90 minutes is like pretty tight if you're facilitating and you're like, okay, let's do opening check-ins, psychoeducation, some experiential exercises, breakouts, then let's regroup and let's do a safety check before everybody leaves. Maybe I do a little bit of one-on-one demo so that everyone's feeling good and solid. And now let's do a checkout. I mean, it's a lot. So in 2021, I created a course, um, I, like I led it live and recorded it. So it's an on-demand video. Um, And this course is called Secure, The Magical Art and Subtle Science of Attachment. So that's like a deep dive. It was long lectures, probably totaling like 20 hours of material. And it's supported by our regular somatic sessions in the Numinous Network, which we call Embodied Attachment. And that happens like multiple times a week. And it's taught not only by me, I have other excellent qualified guides teaching too. So it was kind of like, okay, I'll lead it live once. We'll have the experiential exercises regularly available and people can like go back into that material, maybe by themselves or with their partner or families on their own time. However, (laughs) by 2022, it was clear that folks were loving the secure course, but they were getting a bit overwhelmed, not only just by the amount of content, but by the implications of the content. Like people needed a minute. They were like, okay, whoa, wait, back up. <laughs> like I I need to really let that sink in. So people needed smaller, more digestible portions. So I created a short form called Contact Nutrition 101. And it's like seven sessions, less than an hour long. We did no experiential exercises. We were just like all business. It was like Monday morning. So I wasn't going to like make people cry on their way to work, right? It was like, okay, we're just going to do the psychoeducation. And that'll, it's also on demand. It's in the network as Contact Nutrition 101. And people find it easier to listen with their partners and with their families or while they're driving or tasking. Um, and it doesn't sort of like catch in the throat the way some of the sections in the, the course called secure can it's it's just like a little bit 
there's a bit more levity. I'm delivering it with a bit more lightness. So what you are about to hear is the very first class in Contact Nutrition 101, which has seven classes total. And here, I'm not actually getting into the contact nutrition yet. I'm just simply introducing attachment and why the way you've read about it or heard about it so far has probably given you a pretty constrained understanding, especially if you are someone of the global majority. So if you're indigenous, black, brown, Asian, um, the way that contact, or sorry, the way that secure attachment and taught is a very white heteronormative um, model. But from a neurobiological perspective, we can expand that theory out. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to school, when you're in high school and they teach you physics and you learn like the basics of physics. And then if you carry on to more advanced levels of physics, they're like, just so you know, that was totally oversimplified. That's not at all how physics works. (laughs) Now we're going to teach you how it really works. That's kind of like the sort of pop attachment that you read in books and see on the internet. It, It doesn't translate that way into households and society. And so in this episode, I'm just sort of giving a bit of context for that. Also, like side note, if you've ever wondered how power, rank, and privilege come into play when it comes to attachment, or if you just get really fucking irritated by the Five Love Languages book, especially the physical touch chapter, welcome, you're my people, you're going to want to check out my longer course secure the magical art and subtle signs of attachment. Um, and as I said, that's available on demand in the numinous network. And we can like dish on that, why that's all bullshit anyway. So for the rest of the course, contact nutrition 101, each class, which is like, usually they're like 40 minutes or so. I explain one aspect of those building blocks of secure attachment. So again, those are kind eyes, vocal prosody, safe touch, shared rhythm, and ingestion behaviors. So in other words, each class, I explain one aspect of the interpersonal neurobiology of attachment. So if you enjoy this episode, you'll want to join us in the Numinous Network for all the other six classes. But for now, I hope this is helpful. So welcome to Contact Nutrition 101. This is our first of seven sessions. The first thing we're going to do together is bring on our arms and legs. Anytime I say bring on your arms and legs, it's literally just like make fists, have a stretch, and maybe bringing on your legs could be like um, left, right, left, right with your heels as though you're walking in your chair. So we bring on arms and legs because when we're under stress, the nervous system tends to send signal to the midline. We call it gripping the midline. All the signal kind of contracts. And so signals go really rapidly up the spine into the cranial brain and like pop our lid a little bit. So when we bring on arms and legs, we send signals to the brain that we have this whole body that can help us metabolize this stress. It doesn't need to go like that. It can be like, Okay, so it's the same amount of stress. It's not really discharging very much, but there's more of our body that's able to hold it. It also sends signals to the brain that if we need to say no to something or I've had enough of something or yes, that was so good and I want to grasp and hold on to that thing that really landed for me 
or I need to like get up. I can walk away if I need to, or I can like stay here and settle in if I need to. We send signals to the brain that we have the capacity to do that. So the next thing we wanna do is scan for some safeness. So somewhere in your visual field, look for something that's grounding or stabilizing. For me, very often it's a tree or it's the swaying bamboo being really flexible out the window. There's also kind of like power objects I can see from here. And so when you catch something that's grounding or stabilizing, how do you know that it is? So watch for any signs of downshifting and it could be a sigh or it could be maybe like your orienting muscles down the neck, relax a little bit so your head tilts. Maybe you smile a little bit, maybe your shoulders drop, maybe your belly breath comes on. So watch for some signs of like, okay, it's not just grounding in my head like it should be. I'm actually registering, I'm giving a few beats for it to actually settle or soothe me. And now let's do the same thing with doors and windows right now. So just like, where are your exits? Just like we're on a plane, <laughs> where are your exits? And notice as you turn around and look over your shoulder that like nothing's chasing you <laughs> right now. There might be mess, there might be stuff you have to get to, but you're just gonna scan for where your exits are. You're not trapped here actually. And again, at any time you wanna leave the call, you could just say, I'm out, see you later in the chat. And you can leave if you have to, no worries. There's gonna be a recording of this. You can take it in in your own time. And as I said, this, this session is a distillation. It's the most salient stuff for the most people. If you're finding you have more nuanced questions that you would like to have answered, I'll probably direct you to the course called Secure, which is like 20 hours or something like that. So this is us just getting like the, the most juicy material so that you could actually present secure attachment right after this call. Um, at least practice trying to do that. So a little bit of glossary for folks who are new to um, maybe trauma-informed work or polyvagal uh, stuff or somatics, a word that gets used quite a bit is about is regulation. So regulation, you will often hear self-regulation. In a nutshell, self-regulation is the ability to discharge about the same amount of stress as you are taking in, in a way that isn't harmful for others. So it doesn't mean calm all the time. Self-regulation is the ability to manage energy levels in a way that is not harmful for yourself or others. So you can be angry, but self-regulated. If you're angry and like spewing and scaring people, that's not self-regulated, but you can be angry. And you can even speak in an elevated voice and be like, I'm really angry right now and still be more or less regulated. So it's not self-regulation is, is like, let's put calmness, let's not put it on the altar. Let's say that because there's no way to stay self-regulated all the fucking time. There's just no way, there's no way. So this idea that there's a mythic norm of like always perfectly handling stress is, is um, really, you know, it's toxic. We shouldn't, we're not always gonna be able to stay self-regulated. So the other word we hear is dysregulated. 
dysregulated is like, I am not able to manage the amount of energy that is moving through right now. And so we can turn to an other to co-regulate with us. So co-regulation is the ability to help somebody else discharge some of that stress in a way that isn't harmful for them or you, or to receive help with managing this amount of stress. That's co-regulation. The how of co-regulation is contact nutrition. So that's what we're doing today. The other piece of it is what we call regulatory flexibility. So if we think of having kind of a window of tolerance where it's like, yeah, I can manage this, I can manage this. And then it's like, well, I'm out of my window of tolerance. I'm like starting to get um, really activated and I can't manage the amount of energy or I'm like shut down. I'm totally shut down. I'm just like in a concrete box, cannot be accessed, have no words. Then we're outside of our window of tolerance. Regular fle regulatory flexibility is the ability to go out of our window of tolerance and be all right. Be like, okay, wow, I'm way out here, <laughs> but I know I can get back either through self-regulation or co-regulation. So what we're aiming for is regulatory flexibility to be flexible in our nervous system that if we get dysregulated, we're not like shattered or, you know, it doesn't um, injure our identity too much. It's not like too much of a wound uh, to our sense of self. It doesn't wound others too much. You know, we can go out of our window of tolerance. We can bring ourselves back or we can make a bid for help. Help me. <laughs> help me help you get back into my window of tolerance. So, so why are we studying contact nutrition? Because it's the building blocks of secure attachment. And so secure attachment is the ability to feel in ourselves and engender in someone else a sense of being safe, seen, secure, and soothed. And those four different terms I go deeply into in the course secure, but for now, um, we're just going to focus on the how. How do we feel safe, seen, secure, and safe? We do that through contact nutrition. So just like human bodies have like great variety and different bodies need different diets and that those needs can shift and change over time and circumstance, everyone has their own unique attachment makeup and different contact nutrition needs. And they can change over time and in different circumstances. So even though we might want different kinds of contact nutrition and not all of it is gonna work for us, we're all just still little mammals and we all just still need contact nutrition of one form or another, just like we all need nutrients from food, even if we have a lot of variety in our diets and body types. So there's five forms of contact nutrition. Those five forms are kind eyes, vocal prosody, safe touch, shared rhythm, and ingestion behaviors like eating and drinking. So today we're gonna get the basics of attachment and the nervous system. So it's easier to understand why these five forms of contact nutrition are so crucial to our ability to form secure bonds. 
So for some people, this will be a lot of review. If you're really up to speed on the autonomic nervous system and the vagus nerve and all of that stuff, great, or attachment styles. But I also would venture that even if you've read all of Stan Tatkin and Deb Dana and uh, Amir Levine and all those people, those, you know, there's a lot of good attachment books, but they're all books designed to be digestible and understandable. And so that means they all ignore huge swaths of what attachment really is. And also, research is always changing and, and updating. The other thing is, those are all white people. <laughs> so like, it's like really easy to forget a cultural context of white supremacy and capitalism if you have been conditioned to be like a-okay with it. So you don't really see this as impacting nervous systems or attachment, et cetera, or impacting social movements or politics, but it absolutely does. There's like nobody whose nervous system is um, discreet and atomized and like not present in politics and institutions, et cetera. So we're gonna touch a little bit on attachment um, and uh, the nervous system today so we understand um, this lens of contact nutrition. So first of all, attachment is a state, not a trait. So you might've heard, um, well, actually they even put like a finer point on it. Attachment is a state of the nervous system. It is a nervous system state. It is not a personality trait. It's not even, it's, 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 it's something that is responsive to what is happening in the environment moment to moment. So it's very contextual and relationship dependent. Attachment styles are like an easy shorthand way for us to talk about attachment, but they're not actually that accurate. They're very useful at first, but they can also put us into fairly fixed mindsets and like deterministic mindsets. And actually we are never just one attachment style. Um, within the course of a day, we can have the whole array, the entire pie chart can show up of different attachment styles. Um, so what we read, just like how we were taught physics in a very oversimplified way in high school, attachment is taught in a very oversimplified way. So in a nutshell, we're going to like massage some of these like categories we've been taught about um, uh, attachment. So there's, there's generally four styles. One is secure. The three insecure styles, we're going to call anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. So you might have heard a lot of different terms for the insecure styles. And it, it's because uh, researchers will describe it differently when they're talking about attachment between a parent and child or infant than they do with adults. So um, terms you might have heard are like anxious preoccupied or dismissive avoidant or feel fearful avoidant. Those are all things that we would describe um, generally talking about uh, adults. If you've heard anxious resistant or disorganized disoriented, those are terms that are often used with children. Doesn't matter, really. They're not fixed categories. They're not clean categories. Attachment is not there are no clean categories in attachment, but we do need language to kind of generally point at behaviors. Um, so attachment styles are not clean categories. We're just gonna use the general of anxious, avoidant, disorganized, 
and secure. So think of your attachment style like a pie chart. Everyone's going to be like a blend of secure and insecure because it depends on the situation. It depends on the relational context. Um, and as I said, they can change over time. So you can become more and more secure in certain relationships or generally uh, with some practice. You can be avoidant with your mom and anxious with your kid and more or less secure with your partner. You don't read that in the books, right? <laughs> it's like you, you are not so simple as to be able to fit in a box. Granted, attachment is an expression of your nervous system conditioning. So under stress, if your nervous system has been conditioned over the years through experiences, through your upbringing, towards being more anxious or more avoidant, yes, you will probably revert to that under stress. So if you spend years and years in an emotionally abusive situation, then like you might heal from that, but then show up, you know, in some context with somebody who reminds you a little bit of that and like, boom, you might, your nervous system takes you somewhat back into that disorganized attachment expression. So yeah, we can have defaults for sure. And to be clear, for some people, it is very like strongly, there's like one big piece of the pie, right? It's like this person is like 99% anxious. That, that can happen. Um, but generally speaking, most people are a blend of secure and insecure, and we can shift through anxious, avoidant, and disorganized with quite a lot of frequency. The research in the past said that disorganized attachment was um, very rare, didn't happen very often. But what we know now is a default of like coming into the world and then being disorganized, where you run both programs of like wanting, you know, like being preoccupied, being anxious, and also being avoidant, not wanting. That happens in circumstances where, um, you know, people are, are, are born into a lot of emotional duress or a lot of situational stress and, or abusive situations, et cetera. But what we also know is that everybody will fall into little life blips, will go through transitions, normal transitions, uh, job loss, illness, bereavement, um, relationship breakup, friendship dissolution, and we will dip into disorganized attachment for a while. I bring this up because again, the research has overlooked massive swaths of the population and massive areas of, um, of life. So if, you know, if you're very secure with your beloveds but at a cultural level, uh, you experience anti-Black racism against you every day, it makes sense that you would have a predilection towards avoidant relationships with white folks. You know, if you are, um, if you spend a lot of years in uh, an abusive situation or such as a culture that erases you on the daily as an indigenous person, but you have a few really close white friends, it makes sense that sometimes you'd be in a kind of disorganized field with them. You know, if you experience, um, you know, white supremacy valorizing Asian stereotypes, you may feel anxious with white employers and white colleagues if you're an Asian person, but have a lot of security with a close friend or that sort of thing. So 
there are certain contexts that condition our relationship, or sorry, condition our nervous system, and that's physiological. That's not a personality flaw. That's not a thing we can just like change. We have to actually recondition our nervous system. So that's, that's like what we do in the network. The good news is your attachment style is not fixed over time. Your nervous system state, um, those tendencies, conditioned tendencies in the nervous system, those can also change and be ameliorated over time. So we can recondition. We can recondition the body and the brain to become more and more secure, even in spite of um, multi-level uh, challenges to do so. So how do we do it? How do we recondition? With the vagus nerve. And so how do we exercise the vagus nerve? Mainly through contact nutrition. <laughs> We're like back around. So let's talk about the vagus nerve briefly. Um, Resma manifum, if anybody's familiar with my grandmother's hands, uh, calls it the soul nerve. So it's a cranial nerve. It's a nerve that runs through the brain. It's the 10th cranial nerve. And it goes from deep inside your brain to throughout your face. So all of the openings, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the chest, it wraps in front of your heart and lungs and the back, runs down those orienting muscles, down the, the neck, upper chest, shoulders. It runs right straight down through the diaphragm, is laced throughout the psoas, the large muscle group of the low back, the pelvic bowl, the hips, throughout your guts. And if you have a uterus, it tends to end at the, the front of your body, at the top of the uterus, and it splits so that it goes to just inside the sacral plate and the front of the body. So um, we're gonna take a broader look at the nervous system as a whole right now. I'm gonna share my screen with you. So you can see this. We're going to map it. And I'm going to invite you to try to sense in your body where this is. You could do it with your hands or just kind of imagine it. So let's map the autonomic nervous system. So we used to think that there were two branches, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. But actually what we know now is when our nervous system is functioning harmoniously, there's these three branches actually that we can think of as like three streams of energy and they join in cooperation. They cooperate for our health, for growth, for restoration. And research in the last 30 years, mainly spearheaded by Dr. Stephen Porges, kind of tells us that the nervous system isn't like an on-off switch. We used to think energy was shunted either between the sympathetic fight or flight or the parasympathetic rest digest branch. But actually what we know now is there, there's more nuance to that and that it's not on-off switch. It's more like gas clutch brake. <laughs> We're like learning how to drive this, this vehicle, not to mechanize the body, but it's gas clutch brake in the sense that when you're first kind of learning about it, it can feel a little awkward and you can kind of lurch and it can be hard to shift gears. Over time, as you like hear and sense and like start to feel one with these different branches, you can shift gears. You can, you can even start on a hill. You can do all kinds of things because you've exercised awareness of these three branches. So let's start with the oldest branch, which is the dorsal vagal. 
So here we're going to look at um, this, this branch that goes down kind of the central part of the body. Sorry, I'm pointing at my screen. It's the pink one. <laughs> so, and I'm going to move this to the center so I look like I'm looking at you. Okay. So this pink one, the dorsal vagal, see how it runs from the base of the brain stem there and it goes throughout the face, but then it goes through over the front. So this is the, the, the back side of the vagus nerve, the pink one. It's going all the way down through the diaphragm and then see how there's ganglia, there's ends that go from the sacral plexus right down near the genitals there. So this is the part of the vagus nerve that runs down the back. It goes through the diaphragm, the psoas, digestive tract, stomach intestines. This is the part of the nervous system that helps you absorb and um, use nutrients, literally absorb nutrients. And so when threat is perceived in the environment, this is the part that shunts us into deep energy conservation what we call the freeze response. But if there's enough safeness perceived in the environment, this is the branch that allows us to rest and digest and settle and soothe. So it has an energy when it's in balance of being really slow and deliberate and restful. It's like really velvety when there's enough safeness in the environment. Again, it's not on off. It's like, how much safeness do I perceive here? Now let's go to the sympathetic branch. So let's go up the spine. This is the yellow part here, the sympathetic trunk. So when we detect threat, this is where our fight or flight response is generated from. Um, but if there's enough safeness in the environment that we can detect, this is where the energy of movement and vitality, motivation, um, that's where this all flows from. So it, the sympathetic helps with um, blood circulation, with uh, temperature in the body, with influencing heartbeat. It, it helps us with like moment to moment adjustments in all of those functions. So it's the rhythm of awakening and stirring and energy and it's really invitational with enough safeness. And now let's move to the green. We'll move up to the body and go to the ventral. So, this is the part of the vagus nerve, the ventral vagal branch that runs along this upper and front part of the body. It's also called the social engagement nervous system. So it's heart, lungs, throat, face, eyes, ears, mouth. So a lot of our expression comes from this branch. So when there's threat, this branch is where the fawn response will flow to help us calm a threatening person or move us to tend and befriend if we need to collectivize to defend ourselves from an overwhelming power. When we feel safeness, the ventral branch is where we have that energy of engagement and attunement. It helps us attend to the world with interest and curiosity and calmness. It enables us to collaborate and cooperate and have unity experiences with each other and with the more than human, with the cosmos. So the ventral branch is the branch that kind of watches over the entire system and brings stability and restoration and resourcing. It's the branch that regulates. It regulates the energies. 
of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. It's the crucial third branch we didn't realize. So again, but let's look at this through the lens of contact nutrition again. Our capacity to interpret facial expressions and micro expressions to scan for safeness in the faces or, or to send signals of safeness through our face relies on the function of our ventral vagal. Our ability to interpret tones of voice or to send signals of emotional resonance through our voice, our ability to meet and match someone else with vocal prosody, you gotta have a ventral vagal system that is functional to be able to do that. It's gotta be in good working order. Our ability to reach for comfort and soothing and actually take it in. Our ability to allow ourselves to settle and be comforted and be soothed, particularly through safe touch and shared rhythm, depends on the healthy or you know, proper functioning of the sympathetic branch of the nervous system. If it is too tweaky, it won't be able to interpret or detect or settle into safeness. It's gotta have some regulatory flexibility. It can't be on all the time. It has to know how to rest. Our capacity to rest in states of well-being, to even tolerate resting, <laughs> our capacity to rest in states of well-being and tolerate being still, our satisfiability, our ability to satisfy a yearning to sate a hunger, whether that's emotional hunger, physical hunger, skin hunger, is dependent on the functioning of our parasympathetic nervous system, the dorsal vagal branch. So our satisfiability, our ability to rest in safeness depends on the functioning of the dorsal vagal branch. So as I mentioned, actually, let's have a little stretch. We're going to move into wrapping up here. <laughs> So the way we increase capacity, when I'm saying you got to have like function, <laughs> is we have to exercise the autonomic nervous system, all three of those branches. And so we do that primarily by experiencing contact nutrition with someone else who has a fairly secure attachment style, who has a fairly, who has a well-regulated nervous system. Um, however, a lot of us don't, a lot of us, all of us have been living through a couple of years of pandemic. It's really fucking hard to try to do this with your beloveds. So that's why we like go to therapy or we go to somatic experiencing or we um, take hikes in the woods, you know, or we go, we go to friends that were, that, you know, that where the relationship is, is more secure. And we do that. Uh, we, we seek out emotional resonance and validation because we're little mammals. And, and yes, we have our fight or flight response, but the other main security system we have is that we know we survive in tribe, or at least there's a higher likelihood of us surviving if we have tribe, we have more of us, the protection of a group. And so again, capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchy makes it really hard um, to feel that you belong if you don't want all the accoutrement of <laughs> capitalism and power hoarding. So other things we can do if the people around you, let's say, or the environment you're in, whether it's a workplace or a family group or friendships, if, it's, if you're not with well-regulated people, there are other ways to improve the health and responsiveness of your, responsiveness of your autonomic nervous system. 
That's why here in the network, we do embodied attachment classes. We do group somatics. We do self-massage and somatics. We do that because those are like gym workouts for the three branches of the autonomic nervous system. We like literally go and put in the reps. Um, and so uh, they are autonomic nervous system strengthening exercises so that we can become more resourced and resilient. Um, even when people in our relational field are not helpful to us in that way and we can't co-regulate with them very well or like therapy isn't available to us, can't find a good therapist, that kind of thing. Um, so our ability to scan for safeness and then land it inside and rest in it is something we have to practice. If you have been in an emotionally bereft or like an environment where contact nutrition is pretty thin on the ground or might be there in abundance, but like you can't feel it, it can't go in, then we can do these reps. We can do our reps in group somatics and um, do it in this other kind of way. There, there are other ways as well. You can go to a secure, you could do like Wim Hof stuff. You can do like different things to kind of like shock the nervous system and like really, you know, get um, some more regulatory flexibility that way. But ultimately you need someone else with a fairly well-regulated nervous system and your mirror neurons bouncing off each other to exercise those three branches. So next week, we're gonna talk about kind eyes and the three zones of the face and uh, mirror neurons and micro expressions and fun stuff like that. But uh, for now, this, this has been the longest probably of all seven sessions, but I'm gonna um, uh, close it off here and we'll move to Q&A. So, have a stretch, bring on your arms and legs. That was, you know, really fast and a lot to digest if it was totally new, but hopefully a good review for some folks. Now, as always for questions in the network, if you carry a lot of cultural privilege, you know, if you're like, if, if you're white, if you're able-bodied, you, you know, you have money, that kind of stuff, I'm gonna invite you to take a few breaths, just count to 10 or 20, hold your question. We're just gonna make some space um, for other folks. Uh, to step forward with questions first, no pressure to do so. But if you have a question, um, you can just unmute yourself, say your name, and um, I'd be happy to answer. And if you've got to go, you can just check out in the chat. Thanks for being here. You can bring your questions to one of our monthly attachment jams in the Numinous Network. We love jamming about attachment issues, and I'd be happy to support whatever current troubling situation is consuming your life right now. <laughs> You'll find links to resources cited in this episode in the show notes, uh, either in your podcast player or at numinouspodcast.com. My friends, I love reading your reviews of my book, The Spirited Kitchen, and my editor says she never reads reviews, but she had her partner look at the ones for The Spirited Kitchen, and then she read them herself because they were so heartwarming. So it means a lot to me that you are giving it five stars and writing what amounts to like little love notes to me and my editor. We really feel that. I feel that. For my listener shout out this week, I want to thank Marlena, who wrote, this book feels like a beautiful and thoughtful gift that I have given to my own spirit. Every time I feel a need to regroup from my busy life and reconnect, this book reminds me of who I really am and what really matters. 
beautiful, delicious, soul-nurturing food, connection to nature and the sacred, sharing time with loved ones, celebrating the rich histories and cultures of my ancestors. Love it. I love that, Marlena. Marlena actually wrote more, but I don't want you to feel like you have to write such an eloquent and beautiful, like, it's like you she wrote me a birthday card or something. I love it so much, but you don't have to do that. You really don't. Um, it just means so much that like my editor especially <laughs> sees five-star reviews and people saying, I love it. I'm buying it for my friends. So wherever you bought it, um, I would love it if you would go back and uh, pop a review in there. It means a lot. And I noticed. Thank you. So in case you missed it, I don't know how you could miss it. I've been like talking about it in every episode for weeks now. And, um, you know, if you're sick of that, I'm sorry, but I got to make sure everybody knows because we only do one free week a year now. So in case you missed it, free week is happening in the Numinous Network this year from September 17th to 23rd. The Numinous Network is like an online version of the YMCA. So our monthly calendar revolves around nervous system workouts designed to support your trauma recovery and increase vagal tone. Um, so sign up for my newsletter uh, and the link to register for free week will be mailed on September 17th. Um, also on my website, click on the tab that says Numinous Network and then scroll partway down the page to find the class schedule so you can plan accordingly. Some things are recorded, but not everything. So sign up for my newsletter and learn more about the Numinous Network at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Till next time, take care.